0: Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's, I'm going to say it, Gracie Award-winning, thank you, legal podcast about the courts and the law. This past week brought us the opening of the term with the first Monday in October at the Supreme Court, Justice's hearing in-person argument for the first time since the winter of 2020, Brett Kavanaugh calling in because he tested positive for covid the court heard arguments in several cases, including one in which some of them appeared to have forgotten about the existence of Guantanamo Bay.
1: Why is he there? Uh, that's a question to put to the government. We don't know the answer. I mean, have you filed a, a habeas or something? Get him out? There's been a habeas proceeding
0: pending in D.C. for the last 14 years. There's well, been, how, Don't there's they There's been decide no it? action.
1: They don't decide? It? I'm sorry? I mean, and you just let it sit there. All right. No, I guess this well, is not uh, relevant, but I'm uh, just curious. Personally, I'm
0: not handling that proceeding. But no, we're, we're, uh, my understanding is that we've, we've done everything we could to, to move it forward, but it simply has not moved forward. And the term previews and curtain raisers this past week skewed quite heavily into the realm of politics with bracing reminders that the justices approval ratings are in the tank and the shadow of big, huge abortion and gun rights cases looming over the term, and justices giving very, very polemical, angry speeches. My point is that the media and political talk about the shadow docket is not serious criticism. It is related to a deep problem that some of my colleagues have addressed uh, recently. The catchy and sinister term shadow docket has been used to portray the court as having been
1: captured by a dangerous cabal that resorts to sneaky and improper methods to get its ways. And this portrayal feeds
0: unprecedented efforts to intimidate the court or damage it
1: as an independent institution.
0: Since our last episode, Justices Samuel Alito and Sonia Sotomayor have taken to the speaking circuit to talk about what's to come, Justice Alito to fume and rage against the haters, and Justice Sotomayor to warn of bumpy days ahead. Later on in the show, we're going to be joined by Mark Joseph Stern for our Slate Plus segment to talk about that Alito speech, to update you on SB8, the Texas abortion law, And maybe, possibly, potential beginnings of accountability for the how-to-coup-better election subversion lawyers. But first, as somebody who's been covering the court for quite some time, I confess that the last few weeks have been a little destabilizing. I think that if the court had been quiet over the summer, refrained from their shadow-docket reindeer games, and stop giving speeches delivered at the feet of Mitch McConnell, I truly believe they would have sailed into this most important term of the century with 57% approval ratings and a press corps that was completely willing to agree that everything was business as usual. The justices' own decisions to do kind of partisan things and partisan ways on an emergency docket, shadow docket, I'll say it, was an epic self-own and Rather than just let that be, over half the court seemed to have looked around in recent weeks and thought, hey, you know what's going to win back public approval? Me doing even more crazy partisan stuff. I don't know. I've long argued that the court loves to tell the story of itself as oracles and umpires, and that the Supreme Court press court sometimes prefers that narrative as well but a whole cadre of researchers and political scientists have been arguing for decades that the court is a partisan political institution and it should be measured by outcomes alone. For a century, these political scientists have been telling us that judicial behavior is better predicted by political modeling than by trying to triangulate against complicated doctrinal processes. So while most of The balls and strikes court watchers seem to have emerged into this reality in the light of the 2021 term, blinking at the court's suddenly cratering legitimacy, belatedly asking themselves, is this a crisis? All the political scientists are just standing around, smoking and drinking and murmuring, I told you so, and by the way, they're holding the receipts. Standing by today with a metaphorical cigarette and martini in hand is Professor Lee Epstein. Lee has been looking at the courts through the lens of data and political science for decades. She is the Ethan A.H. Shepley Distinguished University Professor at Washington University in St. Louis, focusing on law and legal institutions, especially the behavior of judges. She's also co-director of the Center for Empirical Research in the Law and principal investigator of the U.S. Supreme Court Database. A recipient of 12 grants from the National Science Foundation, Lee has authored or co-authored more than 100 articles and essays in 18 books, including The Behavior of Federal Judges with William M. Landis and Richard Posner, and An Introduction to Empirical Legal Research with Andrew D. Martin. She's currently co-editing The Oxford Handbook on Judicial Behavior— And this past week, as I read the term previews and they were all laced with these really political claims about poll numbers and wobbling public legitimacy and this judicial charm offensive gone horribly wrong, all I could think to myself was, what would Lee Epstein think? This is shocking to SCOTUS watchers, but it's the water Lee swims in. Politics, judicial behavior, data, all the way down. So Lee, welcome to the "I Told You So" Dalia World Tour. It is lovely to have you on the podcast. <laughs> uh,
1: thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, part part of the story is, I think, and I told you so. Story. Uh, it's it, it's hard to believe that people didn't see this coming, right? Uh, Obama's president for eight years. He gets two appointments. Trump is president for. Uh, four years, he gets three appointments, and he moves the center of the court uh, toward Brett Kavanaugh, away from the chief justice. So, you know, yeah, I told you so. There's there's a lot of predictability here, um, and abortion and guns, not at all surprising. But Dahlia, there's a, another side to this story uh, beside the kind of Trump court side, and that's from the data side. If you look at the data from last term, this doesn't look like a really socially, culturally extreme court. And that's what's a little perplexing about last term. Now, whether this is going to hold next term, I don't know. But right now, there's a a side to this court that looks kind of standard issue Roberts court.
0: Oh, so this is interesting. So you're telling me that while we were sort of asleep at the switch for a long time as the court was drifting rightward, we're actually now getting the data wrong on the other side, that we're over-correcting or over-reading a couple of shadow-docket opinions from the summer and these dopey speeches, but that, in fact, if you look at the data from last term, it's not as bad as we now think it is, but it's worse <laughs> than we thought it was when we were asleep.
1: A hundred percent right. It's almost like there's two courts operating, right? There's this kind of, I'll call it Trump court aided and abetted by Alito and Thomas. um, And you see that in the abortion case this summer. You saw it in the voting rights case. Although, as you know, the voting rights is kind of hallmark Roberts court well before the Trump justices got there, right? Uh, you see it in the fact that they took a gun case this term and and so on. Uh, and the COVID case, the COVID religious case that flipped when Barrett got on the court. But then you start to look at the data. So the data show a court that was almost 50% unanimous in nine-person decisions, I think 46 47%, really high, Um, The average for the period going back to 1937 is like 33%. So you see above average unanimity. Uh, You don't see the six to three decisions that we thought. You know, we thought there'd be a lot of six to three decisions along partisan lines. If you look at six to three decisions, I think they only only made up about 15% of argued cases. Six three partisan split cases um and then look at the cases that made the front page of the New York Times. It, yes, there's the voting rights issue um, and if, even if you take into account the emergency at cases it it doesn't look like the Democrats on the court have lost you know ninety percent so there's there's two stories going on here a standard kind of moderate conservative institutionalist Roberts court and kind of a Trump court.
0: So cynics like me who read the raft of end of term pieces that made the points you're making that looked at the data and said, look, this is a three, three, three court, right? We have John Roberts and uh, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and Kevin on the middle. And, you know, there was an immense amount of unanimity and there was a very unpredictable uh, splits and folks like me said the problem with the the set you're looking at is it weights every case equally, right? It, it weights the swearing cheerleader as though that's the same as invalidating Section Two of the Voting Rights Act. That's got to be wrong, and that's what the problem is with those those crunches of the the fifty-seven whatever merits cases. Is it doesn't wait for you know what is. C- consequential. But I think it also doesn't take into account those shadow docket cases. And so I think there was a sense that we've got the set wrong, and that's why those conclusions were wrong. And I guess the last thing I would say and and fight me on this, because I think um it's really hard to prove this empirically, but even some of those 817 to two cases, I'm thinking of Fulton, the um uh, uh, foster care case, uh, it may look like it's not doing something consequential, but it's actually changing a test, and it's changing a test in the footnotes. So help me look at this not as a set of N merits cases that we slice and dice, but is there a way in which when the court looks like it's doing something unanimous, but in fact the land moved... Uh, the doctrine changed. And we certainly saw that in um, that uh, COVID case you're describing from April. How do we account for all that?
1: Okay. First, let me push back on the first point. And the first point is that it, it, it if you only kind of look at the important salient cases from last term, a, a very different picture emerges than the kind of, standard Roberts court picture. And I'm going to push back on that. There were, I think, 11 cases that made the front page of the New York Times. So that's one way to think this is an important case, right? We we could talk about definitions, but let's just do that. And if you look at those cases, um, there were, okay, so we've got the voting rights place. That's a clear loss for the Democrat side of the court. Um, but then let's go down the line. We've got all the and I, I'm, I'm talking not just I should say not just the the 11 cases made the front page of The New York Times. I'm counting the emergency app cases. So those are in there. Um, go down the line. Look at the 2020 uh, 20 election challenges. Right. Look at uh, the Trump tax records. Obamacare. The cheerleader case. So we're, you know, we we could go down these 11 cases, but this was not a total blowout for the Democratic side, which to me was a little unexpected. You know, think about the counterfactual where they strike down Obamacare. They didn't do that. Um, And the cheerleader case, right? A a win for free speech. Uh, NCAA the student-athlete case. All right, so, so I'm going to push back a little bit on that point. If you just look at salient cases, the term looks different. Actually, it doesn't look that much different. In trying to get at the doctrinal aspects, that's, as you know, very, very hard empirically, and I think Fulton is the best example there of, uh, yeah, the Democrats were on the winning side of that case, but what did they actually win in that case? Um, they got a little save on the doctrine, but the doctrine did move. And that's hard for me to do with data. I think that's hard for anyone to do with data. So I I take your point. I take the second point. The first point I'm going to push back.
0: So if we meet in the middle and we agree, and I think your framing, by the way, is exactly right, that there are Two different stories being told right now, and one mm-hmm. is a very overheated, the court is a bunch of feral dogs gone mad, and democracy is about to crumble, that you're saying is is not certainly not reflective of last term. And then my question is... How do we deal with the fact that a lot of court watchers seem to be experiencing this feeling for the first time? That this second narrative that busted out, I think, really turbocharged by the, the you know, eviction moratorium ruling and the Remain in Mexico uh, ruling and the SB-8 ruling, all of which happened in a really compressed amount of time on the shadow docket, and then really into orbit by the speaking gigs, the Amy Coney Barrett and the um, – Justice Alito and Justice Thomas, and Justice Breyer, the charm offensive all summer. So now we're in this funny world where, and I think you're telling me, it's overcorrecting for the benign narrative. But my question kind of remains the same. Why... This seems to be the cycle, and I know you've watched enough cycles to know it, that this is very familiar to you. But, like, you start – we all start from the place that, look, the court is fundamentally a political institution. The court likes to pretend it's above politics. The press corps largely agrees with the court that it's above politics. Something happens. The court behaves politically. I'm thinking of Bush v. Gore. Uh, The court behaves politically. The press corps is baffled. (laughs) And the public is angry and the political <laughs> scientists just stand around and say like, ha you chumps. And we're definitely in one of those cycles, I think. And I guess my question is, how do you, looking at the data, looking at the numbers, know when we've jumped from that? first story of the court is essentially above politics calling balls and strikes into that second, it's politics all the way down story. Or maybe the way uh, to reverse engineer the question, Lee, how would you, who I think feels like we are way over telling the court is purely partisan story right now, how would you know when it's the break the glass moment and the court really is purely partisan?
1: Well, you know, looking at the data, I tend to look at the partisan vote splits in the data. Um, so that tells me a story. I look at the voting patterns of the individual justices, um, kind of their inter-agreements. I look at things like the salient cases. How are the the high-profile cases going? So that, those are the kind of indicators I look at. Um When I see unanimity rates, and again, you know, people are going to quibble. They're going to say, well, it wasn't really a nine zero or an eight one because there were six concurrences and they didn't agree. And the, but straight voting, you know, up or down, not, not looking at the doctrine. Um, I, you know, I see a court, uh, I, that tells me a a story about the court too. So again, I have to say, Dahlia, I'll be honest. This was a very hard term to analyze very hard um, because of these two different kinds of courts operating. I uh, this kind of uh, socially conservative, aggressive court. To me, abortion is driving a lot of the narrative. I mean that's that's what I keep seeing and reading and over and over again. Uh, again, I'll ask you a question. What if, they had stayed the texas law would we be in this kind of crazy partisan cycle right now
0: yeah i mean my strong sense is that if they had stayed it and just waited and taken this mm-hmm. in december as the you know the dobbs case and in june came down with some apparently reasonable you know we're just fudging the lines on an undue burden or we're you know what majority of what what are the numbers of of women who need to be burdened they could have i think i really believe what i said at the beginning i think they would have had a 57% approval rate this fall and so the cost i mean i just keep saying it was this self-own because there was an immense legitimacy cost and i still don't understand to what end and i think that's what you're asking that this is an unforced error where the court given that it was taking on guns and abortion and probably affirmative action and religious liberty, could have behaved in a way that would not have sent the country into orbit. And so I think one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is, if you and I agree, and I, I on this I think we agree, that the only weapon the court has is its legitimacy, why would you set that on fire in a big dumpster uh, the week before the term starts?
1: So I think you've answered your question, which is what has driven this this orbit? And I think abortion is a lot of the answer as to what has driven it, right? that, that the Texas abortion case and thinks the world would look a little different today had they not done what they did. So there's a couple of stories to tell about it. I mean, one is a lot of my uh, conservative uh, Fed Sox type friends tell me, look, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Barrett, they were put on the court to overrule Roe versus Wade. Uh, I don't think you think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen. But they were put there to do that. And this is kind of a, a, a step in that direction. So that that's one narrative. The other story to tell is, this is really about Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh could have, could have prevented this whole news cycle that you're referring to. And what is what is going on in his mind? I haven't a clue, right? If you look at the data, he's normally, not always, but normally with the chief. And why he didn't join the chief here is is perplexing to me. So I, 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 I could tell a bunch of stories, but I'm making stuff up here, right? About what, what's going on.
0: More with Professor Lee Epstein about the shape of the court as seen through the data on its decisions after a few words from some of our sponsors. Hey folks, I'm Preet Bharara, former U.S. attorney in Manhattan. On my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, I break down legal topics shaping today's news. And I'm joined by thought leaders to explore topics at the intersection of power, policy, and justice. In our increasingly complex world, clarity can feel elusive. My goal is to empower listeners with knowledge and insight during these transformative times. So I hope you'll join me every Monday and Thursday on Stay Tuned. Search for and follow Stay Tuned on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay informed, stay empowered, stay tuned. I have a special announcement for you today. This year marks the 25th anniversary of Slate, and for a limited time only, we're offering our annual Slate Plus membership at $25 off. As a member, you'll get no ads on any of our podcasts, unlimited reading on the Slate site, and member-exclusive episodes and segments from us, like our awesome bonus segment with Mark Joseph Stern, which is coming up for Slate Plus plus members in just a few little minutes and special extras from other shows like Slow Burn and the Political Gabfest. For the past quarter century, Slate podcasts have been covering all the major news events from elections to social issues to historic court decisions. Our culture shows have debated if things are sexist, named the best summer songs, explained the latest TikTok trends. If we have become a part of your listening routine, We are going to ask that you support our work by joining Slate Plus. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash amicusplus to keep us going for another 25 years. Again, we're giving you $25 off an annual membership through October 31st. So sign up now at slate.com slash amicusplus. Let's get back to my conversation with Lee Epstein, the Ethan AH Shepley Distinguished University Professor at Washington University in St. Louis. Lee is also co-director of the Center for Empir- Lee is also co-director of the Center for Empirical Research in the Law and Principal Investigator of the US Supreme Court database. So for me, Lee the last piece of this is the justice's reaction to the story because it seems as though what I find fascinating is that, and again, this is the water you swim in, but when Adam Serwer writes a piece in The Atlantic that says, hey, the court just wants us to believe this ridiculous bunk about their non-partisanship, right? He says I the, the quote is the conservative movement seems to have secured the court for a generation at least, but that is insufficient. The right-wing justices also demand their decisions be seen as the outcome of dispassionate legal reasoning, not partisan warfare. Um and this is the thing that sends Justice Alito over the edge. So then Justice Alito goes to Notre Dame. Initially the speech is like close to to recording. They finally relent and put up a live stream, and then he just rips into Adam Serwer. And I don't mean to name-check Justice Alito because Justice Thomas has said the same thing in recent weeks. Justice uh, Barrett has said the same thing in recent weeks, so has Justice Breyer all summer long. But it is fascinating— how triggered they are when people start to talk about not just the numbers and the data that you're sorting, but the claim that they're oracular. That seems like it's the false consciousness that makes them crazy. And I guess... You know, this is is the question that's been driving me for a few weeks is when Justice Barrett flies out to Kentucky and stands next to Mitch McConnell, who, you know, is still spiking the football for taking that Scalia seat for himself, and she says we're not partisan hacks, does she really believe the balls and strikes story? Or are they just so affronted by the fact that there's a political story being told? I don't get it.
1: You know, it, it's actually hilarious, right? <laughs> I mean, they, they have lived. It is. It's hilarious. They have lived through these confirmation proceedings. You know, why are these confirmation proceedings so ideologically and partisan driven? Because everybody knows that, you know, once they're on the court, uh, and Elena Kagan is a very different person than an Amy Coney Barrett, right? We we all know that. So it's it's just hilarious, and they're in the center of it. So, I think they get this. Of course, they get this. Um. Uh, so here's the way I think about it. What are they supposed to say? Are uh, Are they supposed to go out there and say, "Hey, yeah, you know, there this is." This is really a partisan court. This is a political branch of government. Should they say that? I mean, or just should they say nothing? I, I, you don't hear, for example, Elena Kagan talking a lot, or the chief talking a lot. They, they're very quiet. They don't. They don't say much. Um, so, what? What are their alternatives?
0: Am I right, Lee, that after the brethren? Uh, the famous uh, Woodward and Armstrong expose on the court that that really did, I think, leave that or- Oracle narrative, you know, uh, in a smoldering <laughs> heap for a long time that the justices really did stop talking that they did, they were meticulously careful. I'm thinking of justice Brennan, I think, who just stopped giving public speeches, you know, they just made the decision that they had just been shelled the public you know, the the curtain was ripped off. Oz was revealed to be like a little fat guy behind a curtain. And they just stopped trying to persuade the public. And something seems to have happened. In fact, I can recall, because it was in the beginning of my beat, Justice Scalia sort of slowly, reluctantly creeping back into the public eye and saying, you know, I'm going to just talk. I'm going to, I'm going to, Really take it outside the four corners of the opinion, and I'm going to tell the world what I think. So, is, is am I right that these decisions to, to to sort of the the question you're pointing up does it serve anything when they talk about it? That that also responds to these ebbs and flows in legitimacy.
1: It it could, I, you know, as an empirical matter, I I don't know what I know um, from the work that I did with Posner and Landis is the justices are definitely, not all, the justices are definitely out and about more talking. Um, and, you know, Dick would say, well, it's part of the perk of being a justice, right? The sort of celebrity culture uh, that they like being out and about. So what should they say when they're out and about? And, you know, they have these massive audiences out there listening to them. Look at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, my gosh, no. And she talked about anything and everything.
0: And she was Beyonce, right? That she, I mean, she yeah. could have filled a stadium and people <laughs> were all wearing the collar.
1: Right. And so some people have done this, you know, at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, incredibly effectively, even though they've put their foot in the mouth on occasion. We can think of some of the Ginsburg bloopers. Um, but, but so why now? When the justices have been doing this for a long time, you know, uh, maybe there was a gap after the brethren, but they've been out there talking and they've made the claim, you know, it's law all the way. We're not policymakers. We're not a bunch of politicians in robes. I've heard the speeches so many times. So why now are their speeches, which are running somewhat along the same lines, uh, getting so much attention? I would, I would throw that back to you.
0: I, I mean my sense is that they're getting attention and this is this is just my very thin skin showing but boy, the press does not like to be blamed for this. And, you know, when you see Justice Alito snarking like, you know, we don't dash off our opinions Mm. the way journalists dash off their crap little columns. I'm paraphrasing. Um, You know, it (laughs) feels a little like shooting the messenger. And I think that, and that across the boards, right? I mean, every single justice Mm. has had horrible things to say about the press. But I do think that there has been a really fierce, Uh, Particularly Justice Barrett two weeks ago, Justice Thomas two weeks ago, saying, we're not partisan. The press is painting us as partisan. That is blowing up in their faces. But I guess my other question, if that's right, I mean, I just think you don't want to attack, first of all, you don't want to lock those people out of your speech and say they can't come and not provide a transcript and then go into a room and say horrible things about them. It just seems like this is pollster 101, bad ways to handle your image. But I guess the other thing is, if that's true, that one of the things they're doing that's becoming uh, quite, quite polemical is attacking the press, then I would also want to ask you whether it's dumb to attack the press or whether that's smart. Uh,
1: I think that's kind of dumb. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, you know, how many people out there actually read Supreme Court decisions? Right. Everything that people know about the Supreme Court comes from reading uh your column or or this Atlantic story. Pick your pick your favorite uh uh website or your favorite newspaper, or whatever. Everything people get is from the press. So why turn on the press? It seems like such an odd strategy.
0: Can I can I ask just because I'm I'm thinking of a column you wrote in 2018 where you mm-hmm. said, uh, if this persists, this polarization and the American sense that all of the liberals are appointed by Democrats and all the conservatives are appointed by Republicans, this really is, I think you warned this clear as a bell, public legitimacy is gonna suffer. Um Right. That's happening now, right? I mean, that it is clearly right. in the discourse that this is just a purely partisan court. And I guess I I have a two-part question, which is, why does it matter? <laughs> Maybe it's good that, you know, the scales have fallen from everyone's eyes and everyone can see that they really are just a purely partisan body. And I guess related to that is, when is it time to panic because there's an election coming up and that's the court that's going to decide the election?
1: Well, that that's time to panic right there. Right. Um, and and I think, um, you know, the commentary on the court with regard to elections and voting rights is probably the the scariest of the commentary that I read. Right. What what this court has done. Um, and and so that that may be time to panic. But, you know, looking throughout history the justices have been very good at pulling back. And this may be the pullback moment, right? It, it may be the time when they're saying, oh, my gosh, we, the, there's nothing good being said about us. Well, in the liberal press, there's nothing good in the liberal press, the mainstream press that's being said, it, it's time to pull back. And they can read the polls on abortion. They can read the polls on guns. They're, they're you know, they, they've been able to do it throughout history. And I think Roberts has understood the importance of doing that. The question is whether Kavanaugh understands the importance of doing that. The ball is in his court on a lot of these issues we've talked about. Not voting rights. Voting rights is a different issue.
0: It's so interesting because what you're saying reminds me that I always have to ground these conversations in In five years. We've gone from Anthony Kennedy as the media injustice to Brett Kavanaugh as the media injustice. And from, from where you sit, mashing the numbers, that's a sea change.
1: That's a sea change. And it's, it's a change in terms of the level of uncertainty. I mean, Kennedy was a little quirky, as you know. But there were certain issues on which his vote was highly predictable. Give me a First Amendment case. Give me a due process case, right? Kavanaugh is a little, you know, it, it at this point, is a little harder to predict. And the other point to make is we got used to a court very driven by one justice, Kennedy. And before him, O'Connor. This is not, I mean... I, I do think in the abortion case, Kavanaugh is pivotal. But going down the line, um, you know, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch and Barrett right now, their voting patterns are very, very close. And we haven't seen that kind of court in a long time where there's sort of this soft middle. And that also creates uncertainty and less predictability. You know, going, going back to your comment about the Brethren, it's like the Stuart Powell white days, Where they could jump over and form different kinds of coalitions, and it makes the court. This is why we had some trouble analyzing this term. It makes the court a little less uh, predictable, a little more uncertainty.
0: So so this is this is a, uh, I guess, a really hard and thorny question for me, Lee. But I always get the sense that you can write about things in a clear-eyed, more clear-eyed way. Than we in the press court could do. And I'm thinking that when Fulton came down uh, last spring, that's the foster care case, uh, so many of us were trying to parse the footnotes and trying to understand the exemption requirement and had this hollowed out employment division versus Smith. Trying to parse uh, what had happened to the free exercise (laughs) test. And there you were writing a paper, I think last April with Eric Posner, just explaining the court's increased willingness to vote in favor of religious plaintiffs through your empirical accounting, through your data. And essentially just saying, oh, this correlates to not just to the justices' faiths, uh, but also to how strongly held their faith views were. Uh, That's the kind of thing that would have had me run out on a rail. It's not permissible to, to speculate about such things if you're a constitutional law professor or a reporter. And it raises this question for me, are you looking at this in a really clear-eyed, empirical way, and are we just looking through our constitution-tinted lenses? And if there is, in fact, this immutable wall between how you analyze the court and how we analyze the court, is there some way we could meet in the middle?
1: Oh well, you know, I think I think that um, that may be a too much of a a, a black and white depiction of me. It.
0: Black and white. Okay, go ahead. Yeah.
1: <laughs> You know, I, I I think I think it's more nuanced than that. Uh, um, a lot of journalists, I, I speak to a lot of journalists. I provide them with data, um, especially Adam Liptek at the New York Times. He uses a lot of data. Uh, I I I think they use the data very appropriately, um, and so I I don't see it as so you know polarized between what political scientists say are saying, and the press is saying, you have some, you know, interest in conveying the doctrinal changes, which is great, right? We, we need to know the data. My generalized data aren't going to tell the whole story. And so the, the idea of building in nuance in the decisions as you do all the time, Dahlia, I think, I think that bridges the gap very nicely you know, combining the data with what you're reading in the opinions. I applaud that.
0: But do you think, I guess just to press it one one notch further, that, for instance— during Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation hearings last year where it clearly became out of bounds to talk about the intersection between you know her faith and her religious writing and how she would perform on the court and and that was seen as absolutely I think across the board uh that was the rule of play would you if you were advising Democrats on the Senate or I guess Republicans on the Senate uh uh have probed that f- more deeply or is it the kind of thing that you can measure empirically after the fact, but there's no way to press on it in a confirmation hearing?
1: You know, I I think the whole issue of kind of identity is important. And it, it's going to tell, it, it, it will tell a lot, right? I, I, I believe the data that Eric and I analyzed and show religious identity, the degree of devoutness, religiosity matters. It affects the justices. In particular kinds of cases, the the question is, what what is someone going to tell you? Right, that you're going to ask. Well, you know, you're you're a very devout X Y Z, and how is that going to affect your judging? I mean, <laughs> what what are they going to? What are you going to get out of those kind of questions? Except, um, you're, a lot of ire from a lot of Americans. I always think in terms of specifically religion, what if um, uh, the president appointed the first Muslim to the Supreme Court or the first atheist to the Supreme Court? Would religion be off bounds then? Is religion off bounds only for kind of mainstream Christian religions? I, I don't know the answer to that. But it it strikes me that re- religion has been um, off the table because of the kinds of religions that have, uh, have been in the Senate confirmation proceedings.
0: Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. I am talking with Professor Lee Epstein, who studies judicial behavior using empirical legal research. Let's wrap with this with the caveat that I, I you're like a little bit blowing my mind here and I have to really sit and think about some of some of what you're saying but it does feel to me as though there's two through lines in our conversation today one is a lot of this is row right just an immense amount of this if you factored out um abortion both in terms of how SB8 played out and the way Dobbs is going to play out everything would look different and, and also everything would sound different. I think you're saying that. I am. I'm, I'm I'm a little curious how you do that in the data, but I think there's no way to completely do that in the data, right? That's just visceral? Visceral. Yeah. And then the second thing that you're saying, you know, you've said a couple of times what, what would the justices say? What could they say in their hearings? What What are they to say in these speeches? It does feel like you're saying the single best – thing they could do if they are on this legitimacy precipice, you use the words pull back, um, that the best thing to do to pull back would be to stop talking, certainly to stop setting, you know, the press on fire, setting uh, legal academics who use the word shadow docket, like none of that is helpful. And that the thing they could do is just try to have, they don't even have to have a term where the data looks exactly like last year, but they certainly have to have a term where it looks like they are being judicious and oracular and not being a bunch of, (laughs) to use Amy Coney Barrett's formulation, partisan hacks, right? You're saying just stop acting out and this will revert to whatever the normal 50-whatever-percent approval rating is, right?
1: I think that captures it pretty well. What we know about some of the public opinion data is the more people understand the court as an institution and how it works and what it does, the more that they like the court, right? So they, if they want to go and talk, and they do want to talk, they, you know, some of them, they love the celebrity aspect of this, at least as 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 uh, my friend Dick Posner frames it. Um, talk about what the court does. You know how the court goes about its day to day business. Um, rather than engage in, you know, take on the press, in, engage in a counterattack on on this partisan notions, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me.
0: So, if you could uh, predict whether you think they get it now, they they understand somebody has (laughs) popped their head in the chamber and said, just stop and try to have a business as usual term and don't give these speeches. Uh, You think it would settle out your, your sense is that we are not uh, at the precipice of a huge kind of Warren court style (laughs) send in the national guard because the public is not with you. We're not there yet.
1: I don't think so. I think that they can do a number of things. Docket control is very important. They've taken a couple of high-profile cases this term. How many more do you really want to take? Do you want to get into diversity programs this term? I think they can they can do it. Uh, this kind of emergency app thing is just way overblown. You know, everybody talks about the abortion case and uh, immigration and so on, but nobody really reported the fact that Amy Coney Barrett didn't even refer to the court uh, the indiana vaccine mandate that doesn't get reported she just says yeah sure fine we're not and and don't refer it to the court for a vote so uh, i think they do have to to lay a little bit low exactly what you're saying if they're going to talk talk about the court the court's role in american history whatever uh, but but there's no reason to go out and and uh and take on the press if that's in fact what they've been doing
0: Right. I love that because it's. I've always said the court's legitimacy lies in showing its work, right? Show your work. That's what Justice O'Connor used to always say. Right. And that, I think, is the, the, the reason people feel wobbly about these emergency orders is because a paragraph with one case citation saying, didn't you read our last shadow docket order doesn't feel like showing your work.
1: Right. And, and I, get, I get that. I get that part. But we're not talking about a ton of cases here. Right, And if you, I've started to look, you know, across this entire, I hate the term shadow docket, by the way, so that's why I'm not using it. Um, <laughs> if you look across all these emergency requests that they get, if I analyze those data, this is going to look like a pretty legalistic court, to be honest.
0: I cannot wait. I can't ra- wait to read it. And this is just, it's always just a treat to hear um, you mirroring back. Uh, some of the ways in which like my false consciousness (laughs) is just so (laughs) deep-seated. Professor Lee Epstein has been looking at the courts through the lens of political science uh, for an incredibly uh, illustrious career. She's the Ethan A. H. Shepley Distinguished University Professor at Washington University in St. Louis. She's also co-director of the Center for Empirical Research in the Law and the Principal Investigator of the U.S. Supreme Court Database. Lee, I I know you were swamped today. I cannot, cannot thank you enough for coming and bringing your great brain to our show. Thank you.
1: Always fun to talk with you. Thanks for inviting me.
0: And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in. Thank you so much for your letters and your questions. You can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com, or you can find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer. And June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcast. And we'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping.